morning. Thank you for your prayers for us while we were in Haiti. I got back last night. The rest of the team is on the plane right now. We're going to pray for them in just a minute. But first, on the back of your bulletin, a couple things I want to call attention to. Next Sunday, we have an inquirer's class. So if you want to learn about BCC, this is a perfect place to come. Find out why we do what we do, why, what we believe, uh, why we, um, how we function, all those sorts of things. And then two weeks from today, we're having a baptism Sunday. So if you'd like to be baptized, call Mark or me or the office, whatever. In fact, if you'd like to come to inquirer's class, let the office know because we provide lunch. Um, right below that, you see that we're still in need of ushers and greeters. Okay. We have about 10, a need for about 10 ushers and greeters. You know, um, one of the things I love to do is meet new people. I take them out for coffee, get to know them. You guys know that about me. And um, one of the things I hear is, what was it like? I ask the question, what was it like when they walked in the door? And the very first thing they experience is really important. And you know, that's you. That's who they experience. I'm way down the line. I'm way down the line. They experience you first. And so if you have never been an usher or a greeter, I'd like to really encourage you to come out and do that. There's a sign-up uh, sheet out on the Welcome Center. You can put your uh, name on it, and uh, Mike and Janet will contact you. It is a fun, fun position. You just get to welcome people, and it's really critical for the culture that we're building here of, of welcoming, engaging, interacting with people. So uh, please be thinking about that. If you've never thought about it, then get off your duff and think about it. How's that? Because <laughs> we need you. All right. Today I'd like to pray for uh, the Haiti team. They're on their way back. And um, also I understand, Tim, that Sally has pneumonia. So I'd like to stop and pray for her. We prayed for her in first service as well. So let's stop and pray. Father, we lift up the Haiti team. Lord, uh, they're on the plane right now, and I know they're tired. And I know that they are almost here, and um, it's been a full week, Lord. And uh, as they've reflected back on all that you did this week, we are grateful, Lord, for your using us. Thank you. Pray that you continue to give them safety the rest of the way home, and all the bags and all the stuff we took over would make it back um, safely. Pray, Lord, for the people that we ministered to this week, many of them still sick that the medications that the doctors gave out and the procedures that they did would continue to bring forth healing, Lord, and continue to draw these people closer to you. Thank you for the privilege and the opportunity to, uh, to do this service of love. I do pray for Sally, Lord, as she has pneumonia. pray that you would help her to heal from it quickly. Many of us have had pneumonia and know how uh, uncomfortable and painful it is, so I pray that you would watch over her. And Father, there's many more in our congregation. I haven't even had time to read the prayer list yet, but I lift them up to you and pray that you would continue to be a God who watches over us and walks with us day in and day out. Thank you. In your son's name we pray. Amen. You'll hear more about Haiti later, but let me just say Haiti was a great experience. I've never been on a missions medical missions trip before. I've been on tons and tons of mission trips, but not a medical missions trip. I told them before we went that I was nervous. Give me a Bible and a bunch of indigenous pastors, and I'm happy as could be. But people that are sick, that's a whole different world. So um, on the way down there to Haiti, um, the cold that many of you have had, I got it. So I'm blaming you guys on that. It's your fault. So uh, by the time Monday goes around, runs around, I'm, a, I'm an asthmatic, and I'm really struggling. 
So about halfway through the day, the doctor that was with us, he comes and grabs me. He says, come with me into the examining room. So I went in and I go, what's up? And he said, um, are, you, uh, are you an asthmatic? And I said, I am. He said, are you laboring to breathe? And I said, yes, I am, actually. He said, let me listen to your lungs. Man, never put a stethoscope in the hands of a doctor. Next thing you know is I'm on nebulizer and steroids and all that kind of stuff. And I am feeling better, but he took care of me. And um, I thought, I always thought in my whole life that if I was ever involved in a medical procedure, I would turn green and pass out. It didn't happen. In fact, the opposite happened. I loved it. It was so much fun. If any of you need anything done with a scalpel, come see me. Okay? I had such a great time. Mark said in the first service I should stick to my day job, not pick up a new hobby. It was a good experience um, there, and you'll hear more about it uh, a little bit later on today and next week when the team comes back as well. All right, we're in the third season, the third Sunday, I mean, of the season of Lent. Has, uh, has Jesus ever wept over you? Let's just put the question right out there. Has he ever wept over you? Why would he? How would you know if he did? We often think of God as many of us, depending on our past. By the way, I did come back with a cold. <coughs> Excuse me for that. Um, we often think of God almost as a harsh taskmaster, someone who's often disappointed, perhaps wringing his hands, perhaps looking to punish us, waiting for the shoe to drop, every shoe to drop. I don't see God that way. That's not what my theology teaches me about God. Um, my pictures of God as portrayed by Jesus are very compassionate, very loving, very affectionate, deeply concerned, but overall thrilled with us. Has Jesus ever wept over you? Today we're going to look at a story, perhaps, in my opinion, if not the most important story in world history, it's certainly in the top two or three of Jesus weeping. It's a story about peace, because Jesus came to bring peace, not about the peace that you get uh, that's promised by politicians or the world, not the kind of peace brought about by the UN, but it's about true peace. Um, as we've journeyed our way through Lent, we've been looking at people that cried, and today Jesus cried. He cried. He cried for a whole people group, and he wept. And we've been asking the question, why did he cry? The people that are crying, why did they cry? If we can answer that question, we begin to get a, a, a more real, a deeper sense of what it really means to, to live in a broken world and to connect with brokenness. And today we're going to look at that, Jesus wept. So when I say the word peace to you, what does that mean? What does it mean? You tell me. Shout it out. Calm? What's that? No pain? Okay. No fear? Maybe it's uh, absence of conflict. Maybe it brings to mind a quiet place. A relationship that's restful, perhaps. Um, a job where you're honored. Tension is low. Maybe you think about it when you see the, the 
pictures on the internet and TV of war-torn countries, the tension that comes, I would love to have peace. I would love to have it. Did you know that you were created for peace? That's actually what you were created for, true peace. We all were. We enjoy peace at one level, and yet we're all quite aware that we haven't found it yet. Isn't that true? It's almost like a yo-yo. We go out, we taste it, and then we're back. We taste it here, we taste it there, we taste it there, and then it just slips through our fingers. It echoes in our soul, theologians call it. I love that imagery. That hunger, that desire echoes in our soul because we are created for it. We long for it. We can sometimes taste it, but we never quite get there. We never quite get there. So it's always drawing us forward, isn't it? It's always pulling us to get back to it. And we hope and look forward to the day when we can relax and enjoy it in all of its fullness. We long for peace in our souls. We long for peace in our marriages, don't we? We long for peace in our families, in our jobs, in our country, in our world. What would it be like to have peace? We don't know. We have just an inkling. Just an inkling. But we don't really know. Today I want to look at the story of Jesus who came to bring peace and see what we can learn from that story. The story is out of Luke chapter 19. Jesus is now on his way to Jerusalem for the last time. And um, um, I'm just going to read it to you first, and then we'll talk about it. So in verse 28 of Luke 19, he's going up to Jerusalem. Verse 29, as he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked him, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. So they brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt and put Jesus on it. And as he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. This is the story, by the way, that lays the foundation for Palm Sunday coming up in a few weeks. When we get to Palm Sunday, we're going to look at this story, but from another gospel's perspective. But this lays the foundation. When he came near to the place where the road gets down, goes down from the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, they shouted. Psalm 118. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Okay, Luke has put a lot of attention on the fact that he's on a colt, hasn't he? That's an important detail. He mentions it several times. And then he brings out this whole idea of celebration and joy. They're shouting this song. And then look what happens. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Why would they say that? Isn't this a time of celebration? Why would they possibly try to stop that and say, rebuke your disciples? He said, Jesus said, I tell you, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. That goes back to many Old Testament passages that all of creation shouts the glory of the Lord and praises Him. 
How does a tree, how does a tree praise God? You know how? By being a tree. That's how. Giving shade, giving oxygen. How does a rock, praise God, cry out? By being a rock. By fulfilling the purpose by which, with which they were created. How do you praise God? By fulfilling the purpose with which you were created. That's how. As he approached Jerusalem, verse 41, and saw the city, he wept over it. This word for wept is a very strong word. It really expresses deep, deep pain, sorrow, remorse. He stopped and he just cried. And he said, if you, if even you, Jerusalem, had known, if you had only known on this day what would bring you peace. If you had only known. You ever felt that way about anyway, anyone? Perhaps a child? If you had only known what that decision was going to cost you. A friend? Spouse? Somebody you know that's made a bad decision? If you had only known. That's what he's saying here. If you had only known Jerusalem on this day, what would bring you peace if you had only known? But now it's hidden from your eyes. Instead of peace, the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because, because, here's the reason this is going to happen. Not because you're weak. Not because they're strong but because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you, his time to visit you. At the beginning of Luke, Jesus is called Emmanuel. What does that mean? God with us. He came to be with us, and they didn't recognize it. And as a result, they rejected him. Instead of peace, they found a war. All right, let's go back and say a word about the coal, since Luke puts a lot of attention onto it. We can learn something from the book of the prophet Zechariah, the second to the last book in the Old Testament. Zechariah was written after the Jews had come back from the exile. So you have the, uh, after David, then you have Solomon, then you have the division of the kingdom into two nations, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom ended early and the southern kingdom went on for a few more years. You had prophets writing during that period of time, during the, back during the time when the kingdoms were divided, and they were chastising the people. They were confronting them as prophets because the people were very sinful. They were not following the Lord. They were worshiping the Baals and other gods and goddesses. They were, had set up all these temples to the foreign gods and they had gotten, it had gotten so far away from our God that they closed up the temple and they didn't even know the book of the law was in the temple. And so that's how far away the people had gone. And so God sent prophet after prophet after prophet to them because they had rejected him as God and had followed after the foreign gods. So by the time you get to the end of the southern kingdom, he sends them into exile for about 50 years or so till the first ones start coming back. During the period of the exile, he sends some more prophets to them while they're in exile 
to tell them, I have not forgotten you. I've not, I had to punish you, but I haven't forgotten you. I will return. I will bring you back into the land. After they came back, he sent several more prophets. After they're back in the land, after the exile, when they begin to rebuild the temple, he sends several more prophets to encourage them and give them hope, to hang in there. Don't give up. I have not forgotten you. That's the message. So Zechariah begins to encourage the Jews to rebuild the temple, what we call the second temple period. They built the second temple because Solomon's temple had been destroyed. He also gave them great encouragement in this letter, and he, and he gave them a hope that the Messiah would come back. Right in the middle of this, Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, we read this verse. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. This is the heart and soul of the nation of Israel. This is God's dwelling place. This is where the temple is. So rejoice greatly. Rejoice? We just got back in our land. The temple's destroyed. The walls are torn down. The whole city is demolished. Our culture is gone. You're telling us to rejoice? Yeah. Rejoice greatly, not just rejoice. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem, daughter Jerusalem. See, and here's the reason, your king is coming to you righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So your king is coming back. But this time he's victorious. And he's riding on a donkey. Riding on a donkey. This was one of the last things that the Lord said before he went silent for about 400 plus years. The next thing that happened is Jesus appears on the scene in the story we just read. One of the very next things that happens. So God goes silent. So the one of the very last things he says is to give them hope. Shout, rejoice greatly because your king is coming back, but this time victorious. You were exiled, but now you'll be victorious. <clears throat> so Luke portrays Jesus as entering Jerusalem as a king. He comes as a king. That's why the details about the cult. This is a joyful scene. The people are honoring Jesus. They're ex exalting him by quoting Psalm 118. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And then they remember the, uh, pro uh, the prophecy given to the, the uh, shepherds by the angels. Peace on earth. Remember that? Back in Luke 2. Here it is. They're shouting peace in heaven and glory in the highest. They're shouting exaltation and praise as Jesus comes in. It's a joyful scene. But the story quickly turns from one of joy to one of judgment. Why? What happened? What happened? Well, first of all, whenever a dignitary visited a city, and Jesus was a great teacher, he was known by this time, <coughs> it was customary for the city officials and the leading citizens to meet that person outside the city gates and accompany them back to the city, and they would often go to the temple of their God to worship. In this story, there's no city officials. There's no leading citizens to greet Jesus. Pharisees are there, and they reject him. The high priests and the other officials are nowhere to be found. This is a story of great shame. 
that great teacher would come and they would deliberately, deliberately ignore him. The temple is silent. The temple is silent. Luke has made it very clear that Jesus is a king, but he's not being received as one. Jesus' response is to weep over the city. You see, the city did not receive the king of peace or even understand the things that make for peace. Jesus, as the story unfolds, will not be the one who decimates the city. The Romans will. They expected him, whoever this king was, to come and lead them in a mighty way like David had done. So he would be a victorious king. That's what they expected. It's a different type of victory. They're soon going to be ravaged in a war with Rome. 35 years after this, AD 70, General Titus destroys the city in the temple. They do not recognize that Jesus is coming to bring peace. And so the Pharisees rebuke him. Why? That has to do with the way Psalm 118 is used. You see, Psalm 118 was a royal psalm. It was used every year in the annual enthronement of, enthronement of the king. So when a king was enthroned every year again, they would quote this psalm right here, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, as a way of giving validation, of saying this is appropriate, of giving authority to the king. Now, it was appropriate to sing it as part of the larger group of psalms, but it was considered blasphemous to claim its royal meaning for one not recognized as a king. And that's what these people are doing. That's what they're doing. You see, when the true Messiah comes, he would be greeted by the elders of Israel. This is what they thought. The leaders, the officials, the priests, not by a boisterous rabble of people who don't know any better. So where are all the educated people? The temple is silent. The crowds are honoring him. And the Pharisees, who, by the way, are probably the closest model we would come to of what a righteous person looks like. They cared very much about obeying the text, the scriptures. They tried faithfully to fulfill the law. And they get in Jesus' face because he's accepting honor that's considered blasphemous. This is why Jesus wept. They rejected his kingship. They rejected his offer for true peace. They have instead chosen the way of the sword. 35 years later, like I said, General Titus, when he destroys the city, he besieges it and destroys the temple. Josephus, a Jewish historian, records that Titus was appalled when he heard the story of a mother who cannibalized her infant in the siege of Jerusalem. He was appalled. Even the pagans didn't do that, eat their children. He declared himself innocent because he had offered Jerusalem peace and amnesty. He had offered them safety. By this time, they were beyond reason. They were beyond reason. They rejected the king of peace, and they chose war instead. Jesus' prophecy came true. They chose war instead. Now, what's amazing about this story is that 
Jesus didn't visit Jerusalem to bring judgment. In fact, he said that in John. I didn't come to judge the world. It's not why he came. He came in grace. And that's the story of his whole life, all through the Gospels. Every sinner he talked to, he showed grace. He showed compassion. He showed love. Last week, I think you looked at him crying over Lazarus. We weren't made for that, were we? We weren't made for death. Of course he should cry over his best, one of his best friends dying. That's what we do. And now he's crying over the city because they reject him. Their rejection of Jesus turns his offer, his joyous offer, of grace and peace into one of judgment. Because he didn't fit their paradigm. He didn't look the way they wanted him to look. He didn't act the way he wanted him to act. He was offering them salvation. He was offering them true kingship, leadership. He was offering them true peace. He was offering them true rest, and they turned it down. Now, the problem is that Jerusalem's problem was not one of ignorance. These are all the educated people. They knew. They knew. As you read the Gospels, the Gospel stories, it's very clear they knew what they were doing. It wasn't one of ignorance. They couldn't even claim it was a problem of immorality. No, it's far deeper than that. It's a problem of rebellion. Rebellion is when you know the truth and decide to rebel anyway, decide to disobey and ignore. This is a problem with spiritual rebellion, and it's against God. Therefore, they were unable to repent. Where do you find your place in this story? Are you one that is experiencing some level of rebellion? Is that you? If we've asked this question many times in different ways, we'll keep asking it because it's a core question in the gospel. You see, God made us to draw near to him. He made us to transform. That's what we're created for. We love it. We love growing, learning, accomplishing things. What are the obstacles that get in the way? What keeps you from humbling yourself before the Lord? That's why I started the question, has Jesus ever wept over you? I know he's wept over me. I can tell you the truth, absolutely. Many times he has. Has he wept over you? Is he weeping over you right now because of your obstinate rebellion? What's the obstacle that keeps you from following Jesus? When I was in Haiti this week, as is the case in every country that I visit that, from my perspective, is less fortunate than we are, what we typically call third, fourth, and fifth world countries, I was just amazed at the simplicity of their faith. Um, basically, they have very little medical care. Things that we take for granted, they don't have. So as they came, we saw 664 people. And uh, they were given on antibiotics and all kinds of things and helping people. Early in the week, a mom came <clears throat> with a little girl. She was nine months old. 
weighed nine pounds. And the mom had to decide. She didn't have enough food. So she had to decide. So she gave the food to her son. There wasn't enough to give to both. So the doctor and the physician's assistant were looking at the baby and they called it a floppy baby. That's a baby that's not healthy. She couldn't breathe. Her lungs were severely restricted. So one of my jobs I got to do this week, which I loved, was handle the nebulizer. I'm an asthmatic. I have an intimate relationship with every nebulizer in the world. I know them inside and out. So I did nebulizers. So they said we need to give this baby a breathing treatment. Well, she's only nine months old. You can't stick something in her mouth and expect her to breathe. So we took it and just put it right in front of her face. And she started screaming because she didn't like that. And the doctor said, that's good. Makes her suck in air. So we did that for 20 minutes, and her lungs opened up. And they gave her vitamins. They gave her antibiotics. They gave her all kinds of stuff, nutritional things. And at the end of the week, just before we left, the last day, she came back Friday, and uh, the baby was perky, up looking around, just, you know, just wide-eyed, just curious, but she wasn't before. And they called all of us in to come see this little baby girl because we were, it was just astounding. We got to see the mom in tears of something so simple that we take for granted. Something so simple. What is keeping you from humbling yourself? Is it greed? What idol do you have in your life? Materialism? Alcohol? Drugs? Sex? Prestige? What is it? Power? What's in the way? Everywhere I go in the world, I see idols. And yes, they're all around us here. It's just not a graven image. It's a dollar bill. You carry them in your wallet. It's a cigarette. You carry it in your pocket. I don't know what it is. You're the one that knows that. What is the idol that keeps you from doing that? In their case, it was arrogance. They lost it because of their arrogance. They would not humble themselves when the king came into the city and offered them peace. They rejected him and chose instead war and hostility. We might not have world peace. I don't think we will, to be honest with you, until the Lord returns. But as a community of faith, we can live in peace with each other, can't we? Can't we do that? You've heard me say several times, God doesn't have a magical way of reflecting his glory through this broken world. It's us. We're the means by which he fulfills his glory. We talked about that in Haiti. When we got there, the 12 of us. We are the means that God is going to use that last week, last week, to reflect his glory. There's no plane with a banner flying by. There's no billboard with flashing lights. It doesn't work that way. He uses each of us. The way we treat each other and the way we live our lives is how God chooses to reveal his glory. As a community of faith, we can demonstrate true peace. Everywhere I turn, I see brokenness, tiredness, exhaustion. I see confusion. I see hurt. I see pain. I see sickness. And when it looks good like it does in our county, I see loneliness, weariness, hopelessness, emptiness. I see people that are trying 
to find another something to help them. And when they get there, it doesn't help. It doesn't help. Because true peace comes because a king came. He didn't forget us. His name is Emmanuel. Jesus. Father, thank you for sending your son. Thank you that you have chosen in your wisdom <coughs> to bring a peace uh, in a way none of us expected, Lord. And quite honestly, it's still confusing to us at times as to how to acquire this peace. It seems so elusive, like your grace. And yet it's very tangible, very real. We know when we've seen your grace. We know when we've experienced your peace. We know that. We felt it. It's been in our souls. God, help us as a community to enjoy richly the peace that you brought about through your son, Jesus. Lord, so that we could be peacemakers to those around us. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Let me ask the ushers to come forward. Again, thank you for your generosity. One of the things that your generosity does is send one of our staff members down to Haiti every year. This year was my year to go. Thank you for doing that. Stretches to the sky. Your righteousness is like my mountains. Your justice. to the heavens oh your faithfulness stretches to the sky Church, when we gather together to worship, should be one of the places where we can experience peace and safety, right? If you can't experience it here, where can you experience it? It's got to be here. So I want to give you just, just a short period of time just to stop and enjoy the peace. 
You know, the sacrifice of Christ is wonderful, it's delightful, it's joyful, but at the same time, it's tragic, it's shameful, it's costly. All that's true. So just take just a few seconds and just pause and let your soul rest for a moment. would like to serve either the bread or the cup, please come forward. If you would like to pray with someone, please come forward and get us ready for communion. On the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. He broke the bread and said, this is my body, which is given for you, symbolizing what was about to happen to him. Now, the great thing about that story, that's in 1 Corinthians 11, in the chapter before that, in 1 Corinthians 10, he said, you are all a loaf of bread. I love that. We're a loaf of bread. Calls us a body in one place, calls us a loaf of bread in another place. Isn't that great? We're a loaf of bread. Now put those two together. He broke a loaf of bread to symbol what was going to happen to his body so that he could bake a new loaf of bread. Who's the new loaf? Us. Right here. We're it. We're it. After supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. That's about peace. That's the sending of the Spirit. That's about peace. The cup is the new covenant came about because Christ shed his blood. That's peace. If we can't have peace here, we can't have it anywhere. I'm going to invite you forward in just a moment. For those of you that are visitors, you can take it right here to communion. You can kneel and pray if you want. You can take it back to your seat. While you're up here, stop and pray with one of us. We love to pray. Maybe you have a need. Maybe you have a praise, whatever. If there's somebody here in the congregation that you're in tension with, it's okay just to go to them and say, can we just set that aside for a few moments and just enjoy peace? That's what Christ brought about was peace. Father, again, thank you for sending your son and for giving us a way every week of pausing to remember the great and incredible work that you've done. In your son's name we pray, amen. Come and celebrate communion.